Hello and welcome back to ACFM. This is Matt, one of the producers of the show, with a quick bit of preamble on the episode you're about to hear. This show is a live recording of a live podcast ACFM recorded as part of the Acid Communism Festival held at the Haus der Kultur in der Welt in Berlin and curated by Pascal Jert and Christian Wurstschult. Apologies for any German mispronunciations there. Keir, Jeremy and Nadia talked about solidarity while taking questions from the audience. So you'll hear Pascal and Christian jump in at various points to communicate those questions and to ask their own. If you'd like to find out more about the Acid Communism Festival and listen to sessions from people such as Owen Hatherley, Helen Hester, Maurizio Lazzarato, Mackenzie Walk, Alex Williams and more, head to hkw.de and search Acid Communism. OK, let's get on with the show. Solidarity to all our ACFM listeners far and wide. This is Acid So welcome everyone to ACFM, the home of the weird left. For the first time ever, we are coming to you live from day two of the spectacularly named Acid Communism Spectres of the Counterculture Conference, live streaming from HKW, the House of World Cultures in Berlin. I am Nadia Idol, and I'm joined as usual by the fantastic Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And the marvellous Kia Milburn. Hello once again. And for the first time, all of you. So welcome to this virtual hangout where today, as mentioned, we will be speaking about solidarity. So before we start, a big thanks to Christian, Pascal, Philip and the whole conference team for inviting us um, and coordinating this whole event. And to our fabulous production team, Matt Huxley and Charles Ravens, for making the show happen every month. And today, for the first time, letting us loose on you, a live audience. We, of course, wish we could be together uh, in Berlin for this event in HKW, one of the most fantastic public spaces in the world. Hopefully this event is one of many and we can be together manifesting collective joy across borders in the years to come. But for today, stay with us until 7 p.m. British summertime and 8 p.m. Central European time for this discussion about solidarity which will be, as mentioned, interdispersed with music questions and answers, which will hopefully provide you with all of the intellectual stimulation, delight and gemütlichkeit that you would desire. So without further ado, let's kick off this episode on solidarity. So um, I think let's start by each giving maybe one sentence, a couple of sentences of a definition of what solidarity means to each of us. So for myself, uh, for me, solidarity is simply the ability of being able to see oneself in other people. Uh, and so the logical conclusion of extending your hand in support to others as you would yourself or your own. Um, it's that fundamental understanding that you can be the other person is you on the end of oppression um, or you can see yourself in the struggle of someone else. Um, so, Kia, what does solidarity mean to you? Yeah, well, I can I can depart from from that one because that, uh, you're basically describing empathy, really, in in that, and I think that I think that is probably a precondition for solidarity. But then perhaps we'd say solidarity is is some sort of move towards 
um, at least a potential for action. And it probably something like the potential for action because not you, you don't just see, 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 be able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, but you also see some sort of shared interest or something like that. So that sort of idea that, oh, there could be a shared interest here, that, that then implies that you might act. You might act. So solidarity could be a sort of like... Be a, be a verb in, in some sort of way because you want to enact those those interests something like that yeah and i think um i'd i'd agree with all of that i think um for me the experience of solidarity is the experience of a con of having a consciousness of shared in interests and then you know to be in solidarity as it were to act in solidarity is, is action that proceeds from that there was this great um speech bernie sanders gave you know early in 2020 where he said you know, he called upon everyone, all his supporters in the room to like look at the person next to them and say, you know, and promise that they would fight for that person as much as they would fight for themselves, which is really kind of moving. And, it, and I think it does describe a sort of affective and kind of emotional experience of solidarity. But in a way, technically, I think you, if you were going to make it a description of a solidaristic relationship, you'd have to refine it a bit and say, well, the first step is actually the recognition that by fighting for the other person, you are fighting for yourself, like just as much as if you were fighting alone. That, and that, for me, that is really sums up the, ex the experience and the expression of solidarity. Yeah, so we could, we could sort of contrast it with like charity, which may have some sort of like moral, moral impulse behind it, rather than a sort of the, the perception of a shared interest. That could be some sort of, especially when you think about things such as solidarity networks and these mutual aid groups that grew up around the pandemic, you know, were they charity? I, they, I don't know. I they, mean, char they were... charity has a, a power dynamic in it, I think, by default, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, perhaps that's right, yeah. I think that that's one of the, apart from the philanthropic kind of ideology. Yeah, so so solidarity is much more in principle a mutual relationship, or oh yeah. So basically, we get into somewhere like solidarity implies some sort of conception of equality, and and therefore mutuality based on inequality, which charity perhaps doesn't have, something like that. And which it, is one what what Jeremy was going to talk about, wanted to talk about, right? Because that's one of your steps of like the three uh, three forms of solidarity or sources of solidarity that comes into that, doesn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I guess, like, in terms of thinking formally about the concept of solidarity, actually, I wrote a blog post a few years ago that a lot of people, a lot of our friends were really fond of, and I'm going to turn it into a book at some point. And I, I turned it into a course, actually, that I taught at Brown University last year. And it's, and it really, it did, you know, it came about because it was, there was a massive strike in, in HE in British universities about four years ago, or whenever it was now. And I was asked to go give a talk by kind of colleagues, comrades, a goldsmith. And I didn't really know what I was going to talk about. And I was on the train. I hadn't really, I still hadn't really decided what I was going to talk about. And I thought, well, why are you going? This is a bit of a hassle. And I thought, well, it's solidarity, isn't it? So I, so I wrote down a load of notes and then every, then, you know, and it was just one of those moments where the talk, you know, went really well. People really liked it. People wanted copies of it. So I wrote it up. And then I had a sort of similar experience of just sort of spontaneous conceptualization. When we, we were talking about this, we had a meeting, the three of us to talk about this episode. And I didn't really have any ideas in my head. Like, well, how would you conceptualize this? Like, how, how do you extend beyond these ideas and yeah and on the spot I thought oh this is it this is how I'm going to organize this whole book I want to do it's based there are three sources of solidarity shared experience shared identity shared interests like those are the three things so I mean by the end of today we might have decided that's a load of rubbish but um 
yeah it's that a good was, working it's a good working <laughs> concept to start yeah. with so that's my idea really and i think so for example in a lot of political theory a lot of contemporary political and social theory i would say there is a sort of psychological assumption there's a working assumption that the source of sort the, the source of shared solidarity is is a shared identity the sense that you all belong to some imagined community of some kind that has a name and an identity and you recognize each other in it uh, i think that's really problematic i mean it, that can be really useful there's some really useful work i've seen for example about kind of communal and intercommunal politics in India, talking about how some identities can be more inclusive than others and can facilitate solidarity or, or limit it. But generally speaking, on a philosophical level, I think you know, the sense of a shared identity is not so, is something that solidarity is really dependent upon. It, it might be an effect of re experiencing relations of solidarity. And then shared experience. Yeah, I think the key, I think, you know, I think sharing experiences of some kind you know experiences can be shared by groups who don't and people who don't who don't really feel that they share a social identity Ex shared experience of oppression shared experience of in potential empowerment or actual empowerment however temporary etc and then the fundamental thing i think is that yeah solidarity is always about shared interests of some kind and i think i mean your point about charity i think is really important here because i mean actually a lot of the time when people talk or write about solidarity or, or when you say, right, I'm going to talk about solidarity now, uh, a lot of people will assume that what you're talking about is, is international solidarity. Like if you say, I'm going to think about the history of solidarity you know, within the labour movement, then often people just assume what that means is, is, acts, is acts and experiences of, of international solidarity. And occasionally international solidarity is framed within a proper conception of, of really shared interests but it does often not always by any means and, and but it can kind of sh that assumption i think is often tied to that sort of idea that of sort of a charitable or a kind of moralistic or a, you know a, a kind of ethical response you know response to other people's suffering which is really important and powerful, but I think often it's not quite the same as like the the real like you know the immediate sense that your struggle is my struggle. I think exactly. That, I think, I think it's so different, so fundamentally different. I can't really articulate where it's from, whether that's an emotional response um, or whether it exists in ideology. But that idea that if you see someone in need, extending solidarity and extending charity while the outcome or the action perhaps might look similar. Um, I don't think it's the same thing. It definitely comes from a different place and has different consequences on the long term. I'd say, I, I think so anyway. I'll go with that for now. I mean, per perhaps the next stage to go with that is, is this, um, if it's, if solidarity, so solidarity is, is often thought about in terms of that, you know, the shared experience sort of thing. But we're sort of going a little bit beyond that and talking about shared shared interests. So the next move is like, you know, um, is the idea of like some sort of universal solidarity, which implies sort of universal shared shared interests. But that sort of that's leading us towards this idea that like that that perhaps the the most attractive form of solidarity is solidarity across difference. And if, if you know what I mean, uh, one of the things we, we were talking about when we were when we were preparing this is is that like when you see solidarity is quite a moving thing and we were referring to um to a film called Pride, which is about this 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 example of solidarity during the 1984-1985 miners' strike in the U in the UK, uh, where there was a group formed called uh, Lesbian and Gay Support the Miners. Um 
uh, and I can't. I grew up in a in a, in a, in a, in a Welsh valley just next to the the next valley across from where that film was set. Um, so it might I might not have a universal experience of this, but basically I can't watch <laughs> can't watch it or watch any clip of it without like tearing up basically. Um, and that, uh, so if you sort of ponder on that, like what is it? Why is that so moving to me? And I'm just going to universalize my experience there and say moving to everybody. You go ahead. <laughs> um, uh, and I think it is that because it's like, you know, that it's solidarity where you perhaps you weren't expecting solidarity to be or, or it, it, solidarity across difference, perhaps, although that difference starts to break down during the act of solidarity. It's probably what the, the, the what you see in the, in, in the film, isn't it? Well, I mean, there are, there, are, there are great examples of that across inter international ones as well. As I, I remember when I was working at, at War on One and there was one of the first um, anti-austerity, anti-cuts demonstrations in the UK. And we received a set of pictures and a video from a partner organisation we were working with in Bangladesh who was supporting um, sweatshop workers. And they went out on strike and on demonstration in support of UK people against austerity so they made a whole banner and and that should be normal but of course because it was a poor country doing an action in support of a uh, first world country it was it was a surprise to see and it was very moving in the same way that it's it's about unexpected pairings isn't it and I think that's an interesting thing to interrogate uh, going back to whether we think solidarity can be universal or not is what why is it such a surprise sometimes um and why is it so moving when it is a surprise, when we see some acts of, of solidarity, which is not the same as, you know, donations of money going from from those uh, necessarily who are in, uh, who have more to those who have less, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think in all of those cases, I mean, the way I think of it is that there's something, <clears throat> there's a process of becoming, like in technical philosophical terms, there's a sense that, the relation, you know, the, the relationality and the relation between these sets of people who might appear to have fairly different kind of social or cultural identities, you know, in between, you know, in between them, something else emerges, which is more than the sum of its parts and more than what either of them were to begin with. And that is really, you know, and that is that is an experience of potential, an experience of sort of, you know, of a kind of maximization of everybody's potential and everybody's mutual potential. And it is really, you know, it is really sort of beautiful. I mean, in a way that is, I and mean, that is joy, actually, in the, in the sort of technical Spinozan sense that we often like to use the term. That is just what joy is the experience of in, in some ways. And, um, and yeah, so I think it is, I think, because I also, I mean, obviously, you know, I, we all, we all find that very moving. I think, um, because we were going to ask the question, weren't we? Like, what we were going to ask the question at, at, at that point. I think, like, well, is is um, is solidarity sort of always progressive uh, as we're conceptualising it, or is there like a conservative sense of solidarity as well? Because arguably, the whole conservative tradition has a sense that um, is also solidaristic in its critique of liberal capitalism and industrialization and modernity and their effects. It also, it looks, the conservative tradition looks at what modernity and capitalism and city life does to people. And then it says, yeah, it makes people alienated. It makes people separated from each other. And it, but it proposes as the source of solidarity, social solidarity, like a respect for hierarchy, a respect for tradition, a respect for established relations of power. <coughs> and, 
I mean, do we think, I mean, I think we'd want to say, wouldn't we, there's something qualitatively different about solidarity as we're describing it from that sense of, I mean, maybe I would, I would, I would, I would, I would you know, just to throw it out there experimentally as a risk, I would say conservatism has a, can, has a sense of community, but it's not really solidarity, like what it's, what it's evoking there. It's, it's in favour of community, but the forms of social relations it wants to present as the alternative to capitalist, individualistic alienation, is not, they're not exactly solidaristic. I mean, I would agree with that simply because I think the conservative um, notions of which, for the argument's sake, we're calling solidarity here, are, are always about the in-group. So, so the other group is called in as an in-group um, always. And so it doesn't cross those kind of like borders of class or race or nation um, because it's not about, um, it's not about shared struggle. It's about, it's about calling in, I think, for tactical purposes. That's, that, that would be my offering. And it's about being rather than becoming. It's about Ooh, what you already are. Strong. What you already are rather than what you all might be. Yeah, like it's also that. about um, It's also about cutting off so it's cutting, cutting people, cutting, cutting off from becoming, but also cutting off from any any sort of direction of universality because it's a, a bounded solidarity if it's a solidarity at all. Yeah. Say that. Well, universality is interesting here, isn't it? Because I think from, I mean, at least from this perspective of a philosophy of becoming, universality is not an achievable goal, but it is a kind of perpetual horizon to which you can always be open, you can always be moving. and like, But you can only reach that, you can only travel towards that horizon of universality by passing through every possible difference, in some sense. If that makes sense. I mean, yeah. The other way to look at it is is that like a, a, any sort of moment of becoming where you have solidarity across this sort of difference, that is the opening onto the universal, basically. Do you know what I mean? And then that can... You, you may then find a difference in which you weren't anticipating and you'll have to then, you know, take that path to universality, you know, take that difference into account in your path to universality, something like that. Um, uh, are we... Uh, We're going to play we, a song, I think. Uh, yeah, before we play a song, perhaps we could get Matt to play the speech from um, Pride. I think he's got it lined up. So people... So the, this is a little... You could play a clip from the film that we talked about, which was about this lesbian and gay support the minors. Let's have a little experiment and see if everybody bursts into tears. <laughs> so this is, this is set in... This is a film set in Britain Thanks. in 1984. And it, it's, a, yeah, it's a film about, like Keir said, it's about... A, a real historical event, which was a group of lesbian and gay activists, as they would have called themselves then, like actively supporting the miners' struggle in their fight with Thatcher. I've had a lot of new experiences during the strike, um, speaking in public, standing on a picket line, and now I'm in a, a gay bar. Well, if you don't like it, you can go home. <laughs> as a matter of fact, I do like it. Beer's a bit expensive, mine. <laughs> but really, there's only one difference between this and a bar in South Wales. The women. They're a lot more feminine in here. <laughs> what I'd really like to say is thank you. If you've supported LGSM, then thank you. Because what you've given us is more than money, it's friendship. 
when you're in a battle against an enemy so much bigger, so much stronger than you, but to find out you had a friend you never knew existed, well, that's the best feeling in the world. So thank you. Yeah, that was going to make me cry. <laughs> just, uh, just get my... Well, yes. you know, well, you, you know perfectly well. You only have to mention the miners' strike, and I'll start crying. <laughs> yeah. of any, for various reasons. Uh, does someone want to talk about the young bloods? All right. Well, the next section uh, we're going to talk about the, the counterculture in, in its classical sense of the late sixties and early seventies, and one of the great historical debates in which we and many others have engaged around the legacy of the counterculture is whether the counterculture was simply an incubator for advanced, postmodern, neoliberal, expressive individualist, you know, neoliberal identity, or whether it wasn't, whether there was something else going on in the politics of the counterculture. And to some extent, I think this turns on the question of whether uh, the, act, the, you know, the key actors of the counterculture were aspiring towards some more universalistic conception of solidarity as well as freedom, than the one which was made available by sort of post-war uh, Keynesian welfare capitalism, or whether they were really just looking to kind of do their own thing all the time. And so we thought we would play a song. It's a pretty just you know common, well-known, sort of banal, you know, hippie anthem of the late 60s, uh, the, the Young Bloods Get Together, which I think makes pretty clear you know, which side of the fence uh, this particular group of hippies was on. So, so let's play that. Love is but a song we sing Fears we will die You can make the mountains ring Or make the angels cry Though the bird is on the wing And you may not Christian, you have questions or comments for us at all, or should we move on? No, no, we have we have one question. I mean, there's one question that I would like to ask uh, first, um, and then I'm going to take a question from from the chat. 
Oh, Pascal is going to do that. Um, the question is, um, I'm going to give you give you an example. It's not a fictional example. It's not one of those examples that journalists in the UK always make up to. Uh, <laughs> sort of like, it's a real person I've met. And he's a millionaire with a working class background that got rich uh, via financial products and now uh, sort of like sold off his firm, retired, and he's now, he's, he's usually voting Social Democrats or Die Linke. And I was kind of like meeting him and he's advocating taxing millionaires. He says, you know, tax us, um, let people keep the first million, maybe the second million above all that, tax the hell out of it. And I asked him why he would, he would want to do that. And he said, well, you know, at the moment, I can sort of like, he lives in Cologne, in the Südstadt, which is a bit like, it's the fancy part of town, maybe like Stoke Newington, uh, and so on. So it's a really nice middle class, sort of like very liberal neighborhood. And he said, I'm going to, at the moment, I can ride my bike around here. Right? You know, I have the freedom. I can go with my kid. I can ride my bike. I don't have anything to fear. I don't fear being mugged. I don't fear being murdered for money. Um, and I want to keep it that way. So it's sort of like out of self self interest uh, that he does it because he wants to preserve his fairly privileged way of life. I mean, it's not like super rich, but he is fairly well off. Is that an act of solidarity, according to your definitions? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I, I would say, um, I don't think it is, I think, well, it is and it isn't, I'm going to say, well, let's consider the reasons it is and the reasons it isn't. It isn't to the extent that, um, it's, uh, is it, if it's purely about self-interest, but it's also recognising the interest of others. No, I think it basically is, you know, and it is an example of a form of solidarity. I mean, it's a highly calculating form of solidarity but i think it clearly he's you know i think that is i mean that i mean to me to a large extent yeah that is the basis on which people should think about solidarity actually they should think about it in terms of like preserving what's good for them making things you know making things better for them i don't know what do you two think i mean i don't i don't necessarily think it's solidarity um, I think the outcome might have uh, solidaristic uh, expressions. Um, it, it feels like, I mean, I don't know if this was also insinuated in the question about whether if we think solidarity is good, um, is is this good? But to answer the, because I think it is good, I think that's completely fine. And I think that's because I don't have a crass uh, understanding of individual people who are very rich, many of whom, you know, are not horrible people. But structurally, I would support a high taxation for people who are rich. So as an act, as an as an action, I agree with it. But, but I think because it's not focused on a another subject, going back to my initial definition, who you're seeing yourself in, I think because that's not the intention then it is then it's not an act of solidarity even though the outcome might have a solidaristic expression i don't think it is an act of solidarity but i would like to offer this friend of yours an avenue to um to act on solidarity uh, via the uh, not yet set up acfm crowdfunder <laughs> <laughs> which <laughs> i think that's really good i think nadi's completely right and i've got i have a counter example which, we, which is a better example of solidarity in some ways. Uh, Julian Richer, the owner of Britain's most successful hi-fi retail chain, a, a, year, a year or so ago, a millionaire businessman, he you know, sells hi-fi, 
uh, hi-fi industry, in my experience, has got all these like socialists in it. I don't know. We could talk. It's another whole other episode. And he in, he convert he retired and converted the business into a workers' co-op. He handed he gave the share all the shares and the administration of the whole company like to the to, to the employees. And I would say. Uh, if if like if uh, Christian's business business man friend was advocating like not just taxing well millionaires but actually socialising some of their wealth, you know, that would be an expression of solidarity. But the, this is the whole problem. Actually, in some ways, this tells us something about the historic limit point of a kind of Keynesian sort of tax based model of social democracy actually it can only facilitate solidarity and solidaristic relations part up to a certain point up to the point where you would actually change the relations of production rather than simply changing you know mitigating the out their outcomes well it also brings up other, other things that we might discuss a bit later which is sort of you know the relationship between solidarity and antagonism perhaps we had a previous episode where we talked about love and hate, which in which that came up. And perhaps like a universal solidarity could be, you know, linked to um, universal um, conceptions of, of love, agape or something like that. Uh, so that it's a similar sort of problem that, that that brings up, I think. Pascal, is there anything on the chat that might be interesting? Uh, yes, I'm just asked, um, do you have to be putting something on the line, put yourself at risk somehow in order to be in solidarity with someone? Great question. I think you have to be aware that you are always already on the line, to be honest. I don't think you have to be making like a great sacrifice, but I think you have to be just conscious that you're, all, you're already on the line, probably, in, in some sense. We're all, yeah, we're, because the terms, it's interesting because the term solidarity, you know, it comes, it, 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 the, the etymology of the word in English and in French, I mean, the English borrowed the word from French, it, it's a financial legal term meaning shared risks, the idea of shared risks in a, uh, in, in a venture. And obviously it does have to do with the, the sharing of risk in a certain sense. Um, solidarity. And so I, I think it is true that you, it's banal and sort of meaningless to claim or offer solidarity when indeed nothing is at stake for you at all. And then, then it is just charity. Then it comes back to the idea of charity. But then I think on a certain scale, something is almost always at risk for all of us. You know, in the climate emergency, you know, we are all already on the line, whether we like it or not, to some extent. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I think, I think in a more specific sense of like do you have to sacrifice you know a specific uh a specific material like material or um um or other sort of advantage that you have i would say no so i think it's perfectly possible to to be in solidarity with someone and take an active uh do an act of solidarity without sacrificing something um so i, I kind of depends i would expand on that question which you obviously don't have time for but but i think like you know there's a philosophical backing to some of this both in terms of solidarity questions of solidarity but also charity which which like to what extent does it, does it relate to um various different traditions of christian ethics you know around uh the need to sacrifice to do to do good which um you know is not is i don't i think is absent from in a positive way is absent from a progressive form of what solidarity is i mean in a, in a sort of on a different level if we if we're talking about the kinds of solidarity across difference which might become 
become a becoming rather than a being, then that you have got something at risk. You are on the line, quite literally, because you're going to be changed by this mutual relationship of solidarity. You're on the line of flight. Line of flight. <laughs> Somebody turn his mic off. He can't go down the Deleuze hole. <laughs> Um, I mean, yeah, I, th- I mean, I think not. I'd go even further. It's not. It's not sacrifice. The solidaristic relations are not relations of sacrifice. Like you, even if you're doing something that's hard, it's something that is going to empower you more than it's going to cost you when you're doing it. You know, or that's at least potentially. Pot- yeah. The potential for that is there. Do we have any more questions, Pascal? I don't know. Yes, we have a question about the the not belonging outsiders when they come into into our uh, bubble and disrupts us. This reminds me of uh, the summer of migration in Germany uh, yeah. when, when the spontaneous help for refugees was, uh, was asked and a lot of also very conservative people, oh, yes. uh, their practice was very, uh, they were very uh, into solidarity because they, they helped. Uh, but I, I think that's, that's a big question. Uh, there's a solidarity on the paper, perhaps it's a little uh, the populist, it's, there's uh, a gap between theory and, and practice. Or do you, uh, do you think uh, this kind of help for the others is uh, just uh, a form of charity? I, I mean, I, I, would, I would respond on that and say, uh, at least in, in Britain, the statistics quite clearly show that people have most prejudice against, you know, asylum seekers, whether it's black people or migrants or whatever, where there are the least of them in their local area. So my offering, yeah, so my offering would be that, and this is because I have a positive view of, of, uh, of people if left to their devices uh, outside the machine of neoliberalism, is that actually when you see people at need on your doorstep, um, you, the vast majority of people will try to help them. You know, there has to, even if there is this really strong discourse against, and it doesn't mean that you can't have really regressive and really right wing and racist actions, but the vast majority of people will he- will help other people. Um, and it takes a lot. And neoliberal has, neoliberalism has been successful at it, um, but not completely at, at making people so blinkered that you do that anti-solidaristic thing where you say that person is not like me. I, that will never happen to me, and therefore I consider them someone, not even a, I consider them a category rather than a human being that could be in that position. So that's, that's what I would say on that. This might be a good way to, to, to see seamlessly into the second, the topic of the second part of, of the discussion of our podcast, uh, where we were going to talk, talk about, about whether, um, whether the forms of solidarity and the practices of solidarity, perhaps even the thinking of solidarity has changed from the, from the sort of 60s countercultural era to now, uh, and also to address this problem of, you know, did the 60s destroy solidarity? Which is another way of sort of saying, did the 60s cause neoliberalism? Uh, and one, one iteration of that, oh, well, a couple of iterations of that is, um, you know, in the post-war period, we had these these very homogenous societies. They were, you know, and and this sort of shared experience created this shared sense of solidarity, and that's been disrupted by um, these pesky women or these these foreigners coming into the country, and and uh, 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 and all of this difference coming into this being being introduced into this 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 commonality of experience 
which produced the solidarity. I mean, so there are like, there's very right-wing versions of that, obviously, but there's also sort of left-wing iterations of that. In the in the UK, there's a sort of a theme of thought called Blue Labour. Um, and so the blue is from the Conservative Party colours. Uh, uh, and so blue labor that this this is the this is sort sort of the argument is the argument is that uh, what we need to have is is sort of left wing social democratic policies but mixed with perhaps conservative social views conservative social views which can then be the basis upon upon which some the, the sense of solidarity is re is reinforced something like that yeah well, I mean, I mean, Die Linke, Die Linke had a bit of a, a yeah, yeah. dip their toes in that water, yeah, at least on the immigration us. question, didn't they? <laughs> didn't didn't work out that well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. yes, so I, I'm not exactly sure where you were going with that, Kier. So how is well, this the, re really? Yeah, can you guys explain how this relates yeah, to the yeah, counterculture? So, well, the Blue Labour argument. Yeah, I mean, the, a lot a lot of the Blue Labour thinkers who I mean, Blue Labour sort of came in during, it really came in during the years of the David Cameron premiership and the coalition with the Liberal Democrats, when the Conservative Party had really embraced, fully embraced sort of Blairite social liberalism, uh, along with their embrace of a kind of vicious kind of, you know, uh, neoliberal austerity. And so the idea was, well, actually, if you want to get people to um, support social democracy, you shouldn't you should appeal to their social conservatism you should say look actually we believe in like traditional family values and traditional family life what's destroying it it's it's the neoliberal kind of undermining of security in the labor market it's the neoliberal imposition of mobility on populations that forces migrants to come here looking for work forces people to leave their hometowns to look for work and so instead what we should do is we should appeal to people's belief in faith flag and family and and this will this will make them anti-capitalist or make them anti-neoliberal and so and that and those guys are obsessed with the 60s those guys think they think it was free love and people taking drugs and you know uh growing their hair to grow men growing their hair long in uh in the 60s and 70s that like destroyed traditional working class values undermined the, the morale of like traditional working class communities uh, and that's why people started voting for thatcher and not and not renewing their union memberships and not going to church which they all see as basically the same thing they see like people not going to church anymore. I mean, they're, I mean, the blue labor thinkers are all religious to some extent, to a greater or lesser extent as well. They all basically think once people stop going to church, they'll, they'll also stop joining unions. And um, so it's a, it's a version and it's a thesis which has been around at least since the 70s. You know, there's a sort of there was a sort of conservative anti-capitalism amongst uh, some American thinkers like Daniel Bell, Christopher Lash, which which was already saying, look, like as a conservative, like advanced consumer capitalism is is really destroying everything I hold dear. But and to them, you know, the hippies were just like the ultimate expression of advanced consumer capitalism. It was just like, don't go out to work, you know, don't have a family, you know, don't just you know sit home, listen to records, smoke dope buy fancy clothes uh, and of course yeah and yeah there's a le and and the, the, but there's also a kind of there's an austere marxist version of that critique as well i mean it's, it's quite strong like especially on like you know sections of the american left you know that basically thinks yeah the the look look what the hippies led to the hippies led the hippies all turned into silicon valley entrepreneurs 
Yeah, basically, and and they've sort of destroyed and they sort of destroyed you know the working class in the process. So it's not so it's not just a critique at the point of culture. So just when you were just and before until you said the last bit, Jeremy, I thought you were saying okay, well if the blue labor or you know conservative labor movement more more broadly is is critiquing the counterculture as bringing us to this this point. It didn't seem like it's a critique at the point of, you know, massive economic change of what's happened to the workplace or what's happened to uh, industry, etc. It's because, you know, the hippies had free love or whatever. But that point that you've just made about, well, the hippies are what led to or the counterculture, that, that point is what led to Silicon Valley. That seems like a stronger yeah, position, well, you're right, actually. And those are you're completely right. Those are two different positions. So there's mm. the cult, there's the cultural critique, which comes from the conservatives, who have nothing really, who can't can't really get their heads around capitalism, even even when they write books about it. And then there's a there's a the sort of austere Marxist critique, which focuses more on the kind of historic links between India between the counterculture and the um, and Silicon Valley, which you and it's know. an anti-libertarian position, right? That's what I'm. That's what I'm getting from that. Yeah, and as it, in it, terms it, of individual it, liberty and you know individual freedoms and all of these things. Yeah, well, there's a, this critique. I mean, there's a critique that goes back to the '90s when people uh, like Richard Barbrook. Uh, I can't remember the name of the guy. Who was the guy Richard wrote that his essay with Keir? The California ideology. Yeah, I thought it was just Richard. No, it was Richard and someone else wrote a book called The Californian Ideology. And it wasn't just Barbrook, to be honest. There was a bunch of really good books from different people came out in, in the late 90s, basically pointing out that a lot of the key people in Silicon Valley and writing for things like Wired magazine, they were deeply invested in certain kinds of hardcore kind of libertarian, right-wing libertarian ideology, like mostly more coming from the kind of American Ayn Rand tradition than coming directly from kind of European neoliberalism or ordoliberalism. Uh, and that, I mean, I mean, that is all true. And then more, re slightly more recently, um, there's the Fred Turner book from Cyberculture to Counterculture, you know, which basically points out that, you know, again, I mean, it's a matter of historical record, like loads of people who were hippies became Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and loads of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs became hippies. But I mean, personally, I would say, you know, that, that, his that historical account tends to be massively overstated. And it tends to sometimes ignore the bigger context. It's like, well, it's like everyone in Cal everyone in Northern California was a hippie at, at some point. So it's just it's more to do with Northern California as a kind of central zone of various kinds of cultural, financial, political kind of turbulence and innovation in, than it is to do with any clear identity between like something you can identify as the counterculture and and it's very you know, Anglo-American position and and you yeah. know vantage point, yeah. yeah. But of Pro course, there were excellent points of solidarity in the '60s. Sorry, you were going to say something here. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, that, so that, so that's an argument around, you know, did, 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 did the counterculture just add this? Was it, was it an individualizing thing? Did it just set the ground for this sort of like individualizing individualism of of neoliberalism, etc.? And like, you can sort of you can address that by by pointing to. Like, you know, what you're talking about is the defeat of the counterculture, basically, in the 19, late 1970s and early 1980s. And, and the symptoms of that defeat is what you're pointing to. And then if you actually look back to the to the to the 1960s and 1970s and the sort of practices of solidarity, in fact, you say, no, actually, that, like some of the high points of even this universal conception of, of solidarity, you know, the 70s was the high point probably of those universal conceptions of solidarity and those solidarity across across difference do you know what i mean um so what you what, what what people are reacting to 
is a defeat. But we but we should probably give the we should probably give that the 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 counter argument not not around um, Silicon Valley and all that, but like you know perhaps not even the blue labor, perhaps the austere Marxist argument. We should give it a good go. We should try and take it on at its best, best sort of, its best um, iteration or something. Because if we go back to your three conceptions of the of three stages of solidarity, which was shared experiences, shared identity, and then shared interests. Like if you think about the traditional if we let's go back to them to mining villages and mining communities seen as we did um, we did the, the the pride film uh you know that that is a but those 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 were you know one of the other high points of the of the working class movement was you know mining culture in south wales etc in from in in the pre you know from the like 1980s on on through the 1930s in particular it was a real high point you know the inspiration of for the for the NHS comes from uh, you know the the practices of miners in Tredegar in South Wales etc. This is the National Health Service in the UK. That's Sorry, right. just translating. They, they know. Um, uh, you know, and that but that builds from this the, this this complete and utter overlap between shared experiences, shared uh, uh, um, what were they for? shared identity and shared uh, shared interest because they, they they were all overlapped to such a degree that it was really obvious. Do you know what I mean? And and so it stems from the the fact that like your shared interests in 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 industries such as mining, where which are very dangerous, and which you you practically rely every day on on solidaristic practices and collectivity from the people who work around you because of the danger. Basically, that provokes strong strong practices of solidarity, and then mines tend to be in geographically isolated areas, and they tend to be based around a shared. Uh, you know, one shared workplace, or or at least peripheral industries related to that workplace. You know, they did they they did produce incredibly strong cultures of solidarity, which could which basically led to to political conceptions of universal solidarity and like practices of universal solidarity. So you can so basically those things breaking down through deindustrialization, etc. You know. That's not uh, an imaginary thing. That, that those practices of solidarity did break down. Well, the conditions which made them possible broke down, didn't they? The yeah. conditions which made those forms of solidarity possible and produced that, that form of sort of class consciousness, which was so exemplified by the Welsh miners, broke down. And it, you know, it is a fantastic example. I mean, the, the you know the Welsh, you know the, the South Wales miners, you know the politically. I mean, at least people like us, you know, would say that. The, Indeed, it's, it was because of their militancy and their determination that Britain got a socialist national health service rather than a social insurance model for socialised healthcare, which most European countries got. It's because that was what they wanted, and and the, um, and also like one of my one of my all time probably my number one favourite historical factoid about the 20, Britain in the twentieth century. Uh, what what part of the country sent the most volunteers to fight in Spain in the international brigades? In, in the Spanish Civil War, it was it was the valleys, it was the South Wales miners. So that conception of class solidarity under the influence of the Communist Party and, and attendant political currents, that really did, it turned into something much more than just defence of their own community. It turned into, and it was consciousness expansion. I think yeah. we should have said earlier. I think you know, that's when, a big part, part of it, yeah. You know, when one reason why the, the experience of solidarity and the spectacle of solidarity is so moving, because it, it is the site of consciousness being expanded, consciousness being in, you know, that, that is what is yeah. being raised. You know, that is what is is happening in those moments. And of course, I mean, what's happening 
in the late 60s and early 70s. Actually, I mentioned this the Fred Turner book from Cyberculture to Counterculture. And of course, he he actually he makes a clear distinction within the counterculture. He's an American historian. It's a really good book. Clear distinction between, on the one hand, the new left, which is this which is really the liberation movements, you know, uh, women's liberation. Uh, black liberation, uh, the emergent gay liberation movement, but also the kind of the, the kind of left wing of the labour movement that was pushing for democratisation of unions, of workplaces, indeed of the Democratic Party in the United States, etc. All, all of that. That's the new left. And and it did, you know, it did overlap with sort of psychedelic culture, with sort of hippie culture. And on the other hand, there's what he calls the, the communal movement, the commune movement, the movement for people to go off and create communes out out in the countryside in California and then up into Oregon, up the Pacific Northwest. And it's the commune movement, actually, that he sees as the incubator for Silicon Valley sort of platform capitalism. And arguably what those people were doing is they were looking for community, but they weren't really interested in solidarity. They weren't in, engaging in practices of solidarity. And you can say in, in that, and it's not, and from that perspective, it's not that surprising that by the end of the 70s, most of them had just become sort of proto-neoliberal kind of individualists. Whereas the new left was very much about, I mean, the, the argument that's being made by the new left in America and in Britain, going back to the early 60s, the argument was precisely this. They could, all, they could already see that the, the, the general conditions that produce those forms of, those industrial forms of solidarity were breaking down. I mean, people knew automation was coming. People knew that industries were changing. People knew that, you know, the cities were growing and the small towns were shrinking. And... They and what they proposed as a response to that was an expansion of you know, relations of solidarity of relations, and that was you know that was the basis for you know the idea of the Rainbow Coalition, for example, in in the early seventies in the states, the idea of a, a coalition of different political forces which would share a set of class interests, but would be also conscious of and celebratory of their various cultural differences, which is very different from the kind of you know, sort of spectacular homogeneity of, of a mining community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, there's there's something there as well about um, about uh, especially when we were talking about the miners earlier. That that like um, this universal conception of solidarity is quite often like you. It's somewhere you are. It's somewhere you arrive at rather than somewhere you start at. Do you know what I mean? And we can look at that in terms of actually of of the of the sort of US. Uh, uh, black power movement because you could you could make that argument about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X arriving at a, at a conception from sort of you know yeah arriving at a conception of universal solidarity, uh, which sort of plays into so what are the other what, the only the other iterations of of um, of this argument around this relitigation of the nineteen sixties basically is the, is the whole discussion around identity politics versus class first politics is is basically the sort of US version of of this. Uh, there are there are sort of versions of it in the UK, but it's in the US where this is this is sort of most most prominent. But once again you can sort of make this argument that um that uh, uh that that is the thing that everyone's really annoyed about is basically the symptoms of the defeat in the 1980s and the emergence of a sort of liberal identity politics, uh, which is basically, which is what you get when the horizon of like universal change or revolutionary change has gone, you know, uh, the history of all of this is, is relatively well known, but the, the Combahee River Collective with, the, with, the, with the, this, this collective of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, black le- lesbian feminists, uh, as was called at the time, or they called themselves at the time, you know, who who originated the term identity politics, and 
you know that you know th their their argument was that was a problem within a revolutionary socialist politics basically and their point was you know we want to get to universal solidarity but our experience isn't being recognized in the way that universal solidarity is thought of at this moment and so we're going to start from our experiences and then we're going to get to universal solidarity do you know what i mean um whereas in the 1980s that that, that once that horizon is, is gone well what is your what's the pol what's the politics of, of that form of identity politics it's basically much more about recognition of gaining recognition from the existing state in order to get some sort of redress because you the horizons of political possibility have been uh, limited so much it's and an expression probably... of despair that's why i would say mm. I, I, oh, that would be my that's how far i would go a symptom of it yeah i think you're right yeah and you could probably say that that is something that's been reversed that process has been reversed by the black lives matter movements in in, in the us where you know this sort of insurgent struggle is something that generates this conception of of universal solidarity out of you know and, and so therefore you know the the problem of of identity gets resituated in this sort of a universal sort of horizon partly because yeah the 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 the, the horizon of politics has expanded not just by not just because of the movement for black lives but also other things probably like the bernie 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 sanders campaign and the rise of the Democratic Socialists of America and that, but but just the reemergence of a of a of a of a sort of combative left just rises raises the political horizon in some sort of way. Should we play a song? Uh, yeah, let's let's play. Um, we were going to play um, uh, "Free Nelson Mandela" by the Special AKA. So this is a song from nineteen eighty four, um, uh, by by a ska band called the Specials, but they called themselves the Special AKA for this song and it's this is a it's a good one actually because jerry dammers from the specials he he's he he didn't know about he didn't know who nelson mandela was until he went on a an anti-apartheid march and i think it was one of them i didn't really know much about the issue but like basically the experience of that solidarity on this on this demonstration spurred him to find out about nelson mandela and write this song free nelson mandela which is um which is a great song
And only five years later, Nelson Mandela was freed from prison. So <laughs> it's it successful. <laughs> so, like, I mean, it's interesting to play that song. That's, you know, from uh, the early 80s, from sort of 84, around, just around the same time as Pride. Uh, and, and in terms of the British experience specifically, you know, I always say there's, there's a period running from about 1978, which is the the sort of high point of sort of punk transitioning into post-punk and it's also in music terms and in political terms it's the uh, the year of the Grunwick dispute which is a famous strike when British like mainly white male industrial workers like came out in a very kind of you know to express very extreme forms of solidarity with a a group of uh, mainly sort of Bangladeshi women who were striking in a you know for better paying conditions in a in a film processing plant and and Grunwick 78 through to sort of 1984 when you know gay and lesbian groups were actively supporting the miners as, as we already heard it was this sort of high point of kind of radical political consciousness in Britain I think the same way say in the early 70s was a sort of high point you know for the the rainbow coalition and that, that form of new, new left politics in the United States and so that is really, and you know, and then of course, but then that was defeated. It was defeated, you know, by Thatcher and by yeah, uh, yeah, in, in 1984 to 1985, you know, represents the great period of defeat, you know, from which you know we're still kind of trying to recover to, to some extent. And that, and it's, I suppose, that, I mean, our argument would be, well, it's that, it's that, that is what produces kind of you know contemporary or or recent forms of postmodern in, individualism. Uh, you know, it's not really, it's not the kind of the new left or the the counterculture of the 60s and 70s that, that produces that. Do we have any questions or comments from the audience? Um, yes, but I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to ask one question first. Um, because the way that you, that you talked about, um, I don't know who, who it was, it was either Nadia or Jeremy, said that you know, the debate of identity politics versus class politics is indeed people argue about the defeat. That kind of like reminds me of something that, that Helen and Nona talked about yesterday about the communes. When we said, you know, when we look at the communes, obviously we look at the failures, right? We look at where they failed. But not, it's not necessarily the failures um, that are the sources of their defeat, of their failure, right? It's not, it's not that they failed to kind of like challenge the gender imbalance, that's the source of that. So, so the question is, should we look at that? And my question related to that, it got me thinking about, yeah, it's true, but how do we reach people that are fighting the fight of identity politics versus class politics? How, how would you get them to recognize they're actually arguing about a defeat? Right, and not arguing about, they're arguing about a certain historical situation. And what they should be doing is examining the kind of like structural forces that led to this historical situation instead of doing this sort of like infighting. Uh, so, so, yeah, that would be my question. What kind of, how, how could we form a, a form of solidarity out of this conflict? Which is, you know, I agree with everything you said. It's about the defeat and it has structural causes and so on and so forth. But it's not me you need to convince, right? It's people fighting that actual fight. <laughs> Big question. <laughs> Go ahead, Kia. Go ahead. I've just been reading a book by a friend of mine, Rodrigo Nunes. He's just, he's just published it recently called um, Neither Vertical Nor Horizontal. And there's a chapter called um, the, two, the Two Left Melancholies or something like that. And his argument in that chapter is, 
you know, he says, look, there are, there are sort of two lefts which have constructed themselves. It's kind of in tension and perhaps in opposition to each other. One is the left of 1917 and one is the left of 1968. Uh, and he says that, you know, actually, if you look back at the 60s and what was going on, especially in the new left, there wasn't a strong opposition between those two. There may be tensions, but there wasn't an opposition uh, that we find get being constructed later on. And he says, look, there, there are two melancholies here and it's sort of like a a Freudian conception of melancholy where where you can't where you're trapped and you can't move on basically you can't move on because uh, you, you know you're you're you can't mourn basically and so he said look these two these two sort of left melancholies they formed a sort of some sort of double helix where basically the excuse being the reason we fail is because of them from both sides, it's the perfect excuse you need not to address your own limitations and failures, basically. And so his, 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 you know, the way you'd get around that is, is, is by saying, well, look, if you look back at the 60s, actually, both of those lefts were, were shared the same field of problems. They were trying to address the same field of problems. And, you know, obviously the, it, it's the defeat, the defeats of the end of the 1970s into the 1980s that, that construct this sort of this sort of binary basically in which we seem to be addressing different problems and in fact the problems are being created by the by the um the other left the, those other lefts and if we could get rid of those other lefts then we'd all be fine basically. that's not very solidaristic it's not very solidaristic <laughs> no. i think i mean another answer to christian's question it based on my experience is just to, to teach people about this, this specific history actually and, and yeah and totally the, the the specific history of the liberation struggles because i think you know if you know the specific history of the liberation struggles then it becomes very clear that i mean the the correct dichotomy with which to understand you know identity politics liberal identity politics versus its others is not the dichotomy between identity politics and class politics but the dichotomy between an individualist liberalism and a, and a, and a collectivist politics yeah, totally a politics of solidarity completely the point being those it's not about you know Marx, you know, Marxism and socialism versus feminism. It's about socialist feminism versus liberal feminism, basically. And um, I would recommend, like I was talking to the others about this earlier, I mean, it's a, a recent best-selling book in, in this country, at least, is Emma Dabiri's book, What White Women Can, What White People Can Do Next, uh, which is a kind of intervention in the allyship debate. But I guess we're going to come on to this. But it's a fantastic book, uh, drawing on all the right sources, which, which really um, very... Um, basically makes that argument says you know says that the politics you know the, the, where where there is identity politics we should be doing a politics of solidarity coalition and shared interest and in in doing so we would be drawing on the legacy of the liberation struggles not on the legacy of of what was left over from their defeat i think uh, tactically i think our offering should come from you know i think i think to answer the question on like how, how i'm thinking how do we teach people without also, with also understanding, like Kia mentioned, like where this politics comes from and that it serves a specific function and that maybe we're, we want to suggest that part of it has lost its way. But, you know, it, it, identity politics came up for, for, his, for historical reasons and, and Kia mentioned one of them. I think that there needs to be a generous way of bringing to people's attention the contradictory elements that exist within a lot of the kind of really reductive arguments in identity politics, which are of of the sort, you know, we're talking about liberal identity politics here, which it, which it destroys empathy because it is by default the opposite 
of being able to sort of cross over and see the universality. It's it's putting people into categories and holding them uh, prisoner within within those categories. And and like I said, I think that has historical reasons and it comes from despair. But, you know, like the guys mentioned, I think the understanding of like 20th century history, but also, you know, going back to, and Emma Dabery talks about this in the, the book, you know, like 17th century uh, beginning of enslavement of African people. Like, like there's, there's why whiteness was created as a category um uh, was 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 created to um break down solidarity between you know I- irish workers and um and enslaved africans on on barbados that's one example that 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 she gives so the creation of this category so especially when it comes to race it seems you know like i'm not going to be able to articulate myself as well as she does but it's but it's a really really good one it's a good lens to to, to kind of understand why so- politics of solidarity is very important and see how important something like black lives matter is but also understanding the identity tangents that some of that has gone off on um and 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 trying to you know steer that kind of movement in in a progressive direction but i think we're going to co- come on to all of this in a second again <laughs> but maybe we've jumped the gun do, do, do we have a question from the chat as well pascal something yeah yeah someone asked about the solidarity and identity politics question that there was one uh, very specific yeah uh, yeah it's about it's about, about universal about universal basic income or universal basic services as a solidarity or or whether they might create resentment um, is that something we're, we're going to address later is it something you, you could actually answer <laughs> so will this indeed i mean the idea um, is, is obvious it's a disputed issue on on the left um, is all i could say to that uh, but is it a form of solidarity to give people uh, to, to give money to people that don't need it i mean certainly equality in some sense uh, but is it solidarity? Uh, I think it can be a deliberate attempt to pr- to create solidarity by kind of creating a degree of mutual interdependence between people. I mean, you know, when it's funny, you know, when Mark and I, Mark Fisher and I wrote this, uh, this document, Re- Reclaim Modernity, like a political pamphlet years ago now, there was sort of an intervention, a pre-Corbyn in- intervention in Labour Party policy debates. Like one of the things we were advocating was was basic income or citizen income but the, the logic that led us to it was was not a kind of ethical logic it was a sort of cynical logic because we were th- we'd been talking about how uh f- famously you know thatcher's most long-term successful policy was the privatization of social housing in britain mass privatization of social housing and not not allowing municipalities to to rebuild the social housing stock so you turn more and more people into homeowners and property speculators and um and it was incredibly successful you know intervention at the level of social engineering and, and it has now successfully produced this whole generation of now retired homeowners who've who've all started voting conservative because they're no longer dependent on selling their labor in the workplace they're just dependent on the price of their assets and we were saying what could you do that would do that for the left what could you do that would actually make everybody dependent on each other and dependent on maintaining a generous welfare state we said oh give everybody kind of give universal basic income because that would actually once everybody gets used to it you know you can never take it away again you know you you just can't politically you can't so i think it can it can definitely help to engender it 
I mean, the question of will it make some people resentful, we'll say will any progressive policy will make some people resentful. It's not a reason not to do it. Uh, on the question, universal basic income or universal basic services, my answer is simply yes. <laughs> Both, please. Can we have both? I, it, what, <laughs> yeah. is, it, is it solidarity? The answer is yes. Yeah, it is, I'm not yeah. sure. Can states do solidarity? No, but they can than, engender it. They can, they can make, engender it. Yeah, no, yeah. they can engender it. I agree with you. I just feel my instinct is solidarity is something between people, not states. But the state can have be to a mediator it between can. people. Absolutely. Fine. Fine. I'll give you that. Well, that leads us to, 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 to the idea that, like, yeah, different subjectivities or well, I think we're allowed to use that word will get will lead you will will, will a, a allow you to find solidarities of other people in, in, in easy, more easily than ever than other forms of subjectivity um, and so like just really really practically in terms of, of, of Jeremy's thing about about you know this this cohort of property pensioners who are, who are ba who are the new core of the conservative vote in the in the UK probably in the US as well I'm not sure about Germany you know, one of the reasons that high prop property prices are so important is because, you know, that is the way you guarantee your care in old age, basically. So it's just it's just absolutely obvious that if you had some sort of like universal care system, which was actually which would offer the care that you wanted, then the need for something for this like individualized form of asset based insurance just basically diminishes and you will be much more open to to sort of solidaristic, you know, other other solidaristic uh, uh, shapings of your interest, I think. I mean, yeah, it's very Western based because in you know most other countries in the world, you you take your parents into your house and take care of them, whereas that doesn't really happen in a in a lot of the West. You know, that that's an inter it's a complete cultural difference on how you deal with old people. It's a huge subject, very interesting one, and how it links to to yeah, voting and assets. Perhaps I have a question. Uh... <laughs> Uh, because uh, what interests me is the, the relationship between solidarity and, and unity, uh, unity of a working class. It's, solidarity can also be, if, you, if you're coming from operaistic thinking or socialism or barbary and all the critique of, of apparatchiks uh, in a party. Um, so unity of the working class, it, it, it's very useful as a political strategy, but it also can be very repressive. Yeah, perhaps it's, it's, it's a little bit too pessimistic and we, we don't want to talk about too much about the, the failures, uh, but uh, perhaps you can elaborate on, on this a little bit. Well, my uh, response would be that uh, solidarity is categorically not the same thing as unity and does not require unity in that sense, in the sense of homogeneity or unidirectionality. It requires a certain capacity for mutual coordination and for the, the plotting of, of mutually produced vectors of becoming, but it's, that's not the same thing as unity. And, and that's why um, I think um, that, that, that is my straightforward answer, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a postmodernist, but it does seem very 20... It does seem very 20th century calls for unity. I don't think, I, I don't quite understand or I've not seen an expression of calls for unity which, which, I've, under, which I've really understood the, the real function of. So maybe, you know, things are, the terrain is different in, in Germany. And also, I think a, a radical conception of solidarity is what takes the place. It, it's, you know, the thing that people are trying, think they want when they call for unity. What they mean, really, is solidarity. Tell them, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs>
No, no. I mean, I, I, I think the kind of like unity. Uh, I'm not sure if that is what Pascal was was hinting at. Is w we see it as a sort of like, well, coming back at farce in a in a sense. And for example, in the writings of Mark uh, Maglilla, um, you know, who who constantly says, you know, what what the left, the social democratic left has lost is a sort of like idea of an us and it's been replaced by identity politics and by class politics and he says that us is the kind of like mutual citizenship. So indeed a certain kind of like aspect of, which brings me to the question what kind of universality is desired, right? I mean, it's, it's you know, if, if you were to ask me, it's not, I, I wouldn't say citizenship is universality because it's exclusive. Um, Obviously, and uh, can thus not be a source of, of solidarity because it excludes the non-citizen um, by definition. Um, you know, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, but it's, it's quite interesting. He, he, the sort of like the, the way he phrases the argument. There's a similarity. So there's a similarity in argumentation in what he writes and what these older calls to unity have. But instead, you know, they were at least thinking about the unity of the working, the working class, and he's just now thinking of the unity of us, the American citizen. I think it's something you do, not something you necessarily need to define. That's, that would be my mini intervention. No, I, I think I'd go further, and I'd say, um, like, you know, there's, uh, uh, I think there's, like, like, there's an insurgent universality, right, which, uh, and so, you know, um, you could probably do it, in fact, through sort of, like, you know, um, constitutions where he'd sort of look at the you know the u.s constitution or the french constitution uh, uh and you know with that you know all, all men are created equal in the u.s constitution well they didn't actually mean that did they <laughs> right they didn't mean the slaves did they but hey there was a revolution which took that seriously in haiti right and they you know they that 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 was like you know they yeah the, that that insurgent uh, uh um the, the results of that insurgent solidarity, if you like, if you put it that way, look very different to like the, the abstract unity of a, uh, perhaps I am talking about a top-down or an abstract uh, uh, unity, which you might think of, I don't know, perhaps in, in like you know the, the the discourse around human rights, which might 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 well lead to sort of something like might lead. But that really that, that brings us back to to you know my original point that we started at the beginning of this is that that's a great example here or you know like universal suffrage or we know with the vote or whatever is that if you if there's whole sections of humanity i.e 50 percent women or you know everyone who is non-white after a definition of white that comes in which of which you've gone as far as basing a constitution on the on the basis of all of these people don't count then you need some sort of action like, you know, happened in Haiti or, you know, the, the, what we were talking about in, in Barbados and m many other examples of our history, which put people in a position of realizing that these other people are people. And it has to be through, you know, struggle. That's how it happens. It's like, oh, shit, you know, we've forgotten about all of the women. <laughs> and then you just make it happen. And then it becomes becomes normative. It's through it's through struggle. Right. It's not through. I don't know. I have to think about the unity one. Maybe we should do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I mean, I think, I mean, it was thinkers like Jacques Derrida and Jean-Luc Nancy and, and people they were drawing on like Levinas. I mean, one of, they were all trying to get at some notion of a horizon of universality that wasn't couldn't be thought of in terms of unity. Actually, that's that's partly what they were trying to get at. And you know, 
I think it was, and it was partly motivated by thinking about forms of solidarity. You know, they were they were thinking about the question of like hospitality, like what do we owe to the stranger, like the, the how do we conceptualise friendship in ways that are not limited by kind of you know ideas of unity or ethnic or, or ethnocentrism or patriarchy, and um, you know the fact that you know it's just I always say this, you know, it's a shame. Because they mostly got read and promoted by American liberals, like that dimension of the thought, their thought it often gets missed. I think in both the English-speaking world and often, I think in Germany as well, actually, where a lot of the the reading of that stuff came back via those those kind of Anglo interventions. So that's one source there. But I, but I mean, Nazi is completely right in practice. You know, this stuff is experienced in in struggle. Okay, so I think we, we've talked a lot about, we've talked already about some of the stuff we wanted to talk about in this section, which is touching on identity politics. And, you know, thanks to the guys for bringing in unity, throwing that spanner in the works as well to think to think about. Um, but I, I think we want to talk now about what inhibits and what provokes solidarity today. So I think that's what we would like to end on. Okay, well, <laughs> we've got to lay the points here to condense, haven't we? But I think, you know, I mean, the basic operative operational mechanism of neoliberalism, but also to some extent of liberalism historically, and in fact of all, arguably of all ideology in any hierarchical society, I think, is is to inhibit solidarity. Basically, is to inhibit relations of solidarity from emerging amongst those who are outside the social elite. And clearly, you know, I, I mean, you can pretty much... You could identify, you could just analyse the whole of sort of advanced neoliberal culture as a giant machine, which is supposed, which is designed to prevent relations of solidarity from emerging by provoking, by you know, valorising the privatisation of experience, by by enforcing the privatisation of experience, by enforcing competition on people in the labour market and everywhere else. But to some extent, it has to do that because, you know, this was a point kind of made by Marx, you know, 150 years ago. It's the point made by people like Negri. The trouble is capitalism is is always having to find ways to prevent relations of solidarity from emerging because capitalism was always doing things which have a tendency to provoke it. You know, you get you take people out of the countryside, but you, you stick them together in cities and factories, you know, all other things being equal, they're going to develop relations of solidarity in those contexts. So you, capitalism is always having working according to this double movement, I think it's it's producing conditions which ought to give which could which left to their own devices would give rise to forms of solidarity. And so it has to find ways of making sure that doesn't happen. And that's even true with things like sort of social media. You know, if social media weren't carefully designed in ways which are encouraged to make people everybody kind of distracted and crazy and competitive, it, then it would it would just be a vast networking tool for people to recognise each other's you know common interest. I think. Um, I I the only point that I really wanted to make in this section that we we didn't talk about before is is just highlighting the 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 interesting re- situation of being in a pandemic and what the pandemic has done to solidarity and how that interacts with capitalism i think is 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 really interesting because as you were talking about before the um one of you guys mentioned you know the the mutual aid groups and you know like we're talking about with the the refugee crisis just people just actually helping each other out um and i think that's that's really interesting and um and particularly interesting to look at this phase uh this summer that we're going to have and and whether things go back to normal or whether some of uh, of of that quality is retained in society assuming that we're on the way out of 
of this pandemic. That's the only point that I'm going to make in this section. Well, do you think that the experience of the pandemic is going to increase, you know, forms and experiences of social solidarity in, in the medium term? I mean, I think it has. Like, we've seen that expression. But the question is, because neoliberalism has is, in general, so successful at atomizing people very quickly after those experiences, is whether the combination of the experiences of solidarity that people have had on the ground over the last 18 months plus the kind of what I'm calling the summer of love because people are going to get out get out there and finally, you know, go to a party or, you know, whatever, if the weather holds. Obviously, this is, for us, this is England and, you know, anything can happen. The weather affects politics massively. But whether the combination of the experiences that people have and the 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 optimism of the future of being able to see people again and be in crowds and ha- whether that is going to produce, you know, a certain kind of... Uh, opening for not going to back to the normal of neoliberalism and I don't know I just think it's interesting we should say for our for any German listeners we have that as soon as in, in the in the first sort of months of the pandemic in the UK there was just a, a absolutely a, a huge explosion of what, what what got termed mutual aid groups which is and the term it was the phrasing was pretty interesting and I think it was some of the people who set the first ones were from sort of like a, 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 an anarchist background and so it was Kropotkin's book on mutual aid was, but but it, it was just really 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 was remarkable the scale of it just the the, the sort of proliferation of, of these mutual aid groups and it was basically people just you know um, checking on their neighbours setting whatsapp groups to make sure that elderly people could get their shopping and these sorts of things uh, and it, some of them kept going right the way through the pandemic. Some of them sort of got brought into sort of, you know, official council services and these sorts of, these sorts of things. So there was that initial flush of, of, of real sense of solidarity, um, which probably has faded to, to some degree. And then but the, the, the wider thing about the about the pandemic is that the, the problem is structured in such a way that it points towards it's basically it points towards being a global problem so one of the things we see now is like i think joe biden yesterday said they were going to give um i can't remember 500 million vaccines to the global south um so that's a that's a that's an act of solidarity which is probably produced rather than some sort of feeling of empathy it's produced from from this the, the recognition that if you know if you let the the pandemic go run rampant in the global south they're going to be these variants one of which is sweeping the uk at the moment uh and and you know in in that sense it's a it's a it's a problem structured very in a similar way to climate change where where you know any sense of solidarity on a purely national level it's not of much use to be honest basically because the problem is global do you know what i mean uh, what those what that what effect that has what effect that has on people's subjectivities i think is varies depending on, on a whole series of things like it, it does seem to be that there were a whole series of interviews i, I was reading recently with 16 to 25 year olds around around europe uh, and it was very interesting in the sort of the the effect it seemed to have was some of them were unsurprising i one of the effects was like really severe mental health problems was a real commonality um but the other one was just you know it, it just seemed to lead automatically to like a structural analysis and quite often to an anti-capitalist analysis and it just seems to be that the structure of the of of both the problem and the the level the scale of the response that governments have been forced into has 
you know, uh, in terms of like stimulus, etc., it just seems to have had some sort of some sort of impact. But it also, what what it also seems to be, it seems to be taken, especially by young people, as this is what this uh, what we're experiencing now is what the future holds. Basically, this is just a little a little glimpse of the kinds of problems we're going to be facing on an on an increasingly rapid level due to the problem of climate change. And so there's there's this idea of we need systemic change and like for young people it seems to be we're going to be the ones who are obligated to do it which is so it's like a despair it's not a hopeful sort of um uh, affect it's more like despair leading but not despair leading to inaction despair leading to a sense of of duty or something like that what effect that will have on on solidarity i don't know so <laughs> Uh, we should end on a high note after that point, <laughs> Kia. We have, four, we have four minutes left. So shall we play the fantastic song Revolution? Does somebody want to talk about it? Okay. It's Nina Simone uh, from the late 60s. You know, it's kind of always axiomatic for me that Nina Simone really ought to be remembered as like one of the great uh, musical voices of that period. You know, she's more, you know, more than like Mick Jagger and John Lennon. Uh, this was the song which was her sort of response, actually, to the Beatles, you know, revolution song about not wanting a revolution. Um, so let's hear it. I see about ten soul brothers out there. You won. <laughs> and this is our last tune. It's called because I see the face of things to come. Well, there you go, Nina Simone, communist, you know, black liberationist, 
queer feminist, uh, the voice of the Rainbow Coalition for me, and still still tears up a dance floor. 